Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger. And from Motley Fool Deep Value, Mr. Ron Gross. Good to see you, gents. We're hey. back. <laughs> We've got the latest on entertainment, retail, and a whole lot going on in the beverage industry. Are international stocks worth the risk? We'll get an answer from Portfolio Manager Bill Mann. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. Last week, we started with Walmart. This week, we start with the second largest retailer in the U.S. And that's Target. Fourth quarter profit and revenue coming in higher than expected. Not everybody had a good holiday, Ron, but it seems like Target did. Yeah, they did a nice job. And if you can ignore the $5 billion they lost over in Canada, <laughs> results look pretty good. Um, Isn't that what investors did this we, week? We have, yeah, exactly. You, Ignored you, the $5 billion that, they lost. Chris, that's the past. We need to look forward. <laughs> um, but things did look actually pretty good. The holiday season um, was strong for them, especially because they waived shipping fees um, on for their online business. And that helped digital sales grow 30%, which was a, a real strong number. Uh, Same-star sales in their store. Up 3.8 percent, um, also pretty good. Seems like they've put the the whole fiasco behind them with the data breach. Moving forward, there um, there's an investor meeting coming up um, next week where they're going to talk about some investments they're going to be making. A little bit cryptic on that, as well as some cost cuts um, to help them pay for these investments. So I think um, the, the the street will be looking at that meeting pretty closely. Well, I guess the the question I have with Target is if you can't win, if you can't make it in Canada, where else where else is Target going to go? And and so I, you know, the results were good, sure, but I, as far as how how is this company going to grow outside the U.S. in a significant way? I, it's, it's tough to see. It uh, is tough to say. Brian Cornell, the relatively new CEO, has been uh, performing well, and certainly the stock I think reflects that. But I, I want to ask you about something that was said on the conference call, Ron, because you mentioned the same store sales. Uh, Target had uh, one of the executives had said on the conference call that was nearly double what they were expecting, and I don't own shares of Target, but I I hear something like that and I think, wait a minute, is that a good thing that it was double? <laughs> like, are you bad at under, forecasting? Under promise, overperform. I think based you know on on the last twelve months or even longer, they've had that it you know it was smart of them to be conservative. It's always tough to predict the holiday season, so um, un- under promise and and things turned out okay. Home Depot hitting a new all-time high this week after fourth quarter results came in better than expected. And Jason, it was just one year ago that management publicly expressed concern about the company's growth prospects. Seems like those concerns were unfounded. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it, Home Depot is a company that will grow slowly but surely. But I tell you, of all the physical retail plays in the space, it, this really, I think, is my favorite by a long shot. Um, I mean, Target notwithstanding, I think that's a far better experience than going into something like Walmart. But I, I really like the differentiation that Home Depot uh, enjoys there because, you know, in that home uh, improvement space, I mean, that that is something where typically, you know, the individual really does need to go to that go to that store and check out what they have there. And for those that don't, Home Depot is doing a great job of exploiting e-commerce as well. They grew their e-commerce division over a billion dollars last year. 
about 40% of those e-commerce orders were pick up in stores. So, you know, they're doing a good job of leveraging that physical retail space, all the while, I think, continuing to focus on something that hampered uh, the company uh, years ago, and that was the service aspect of the business. And so, you see today where Home Depot, at Lowe's to a lesser degree, is doing well also, but, but Home Depot possesses the scale and, I think, enjoys a better margin structure, uh, so that when I look at these two stores, if I compare Home Depot to Lowe's, I'm going I'm to give Home Depot the edge there. Uh, but, I mean, it's just a well-managed company. I mean, the outstanding shares down 23% since 2010. They continue to juice that dividend, and, and the new share of repurchase authorization should continue that. Uh, so, I, I foresee, especially with these good housing numbers this week, a, a, a very good 2015 for Home Depot. And it is a little bit of short-term thinking, but when you consider the severe winter weather and what that is doing to homes across much of the country. You have to believe that the the next couple quarters are probably setting up pretty nicely for Home Depot and Lowe's. I think you're right. I think we'll see some great numbers coming from those companies this summer. In something of a surprise this week, First Solar announced a partnership with its main competitor, Sun Power Corp. And Maddie, I have to believe that uh, this must be a, a good thing because both stocks up more than 15 percent. Certainly, it was well-received on Wall Street. First and foremost, what is this partnership between these two companies? Sure. It's a, it's a, it's a new trend among renewable energy companies. And so, instead of spending all the capital and expenses to build solar panels and sell them, or solar plants and sell them, uh, these companies want to actually get into the ownership business, into the electricity delivery business. And so, what First Solar and SunPower are doing, they're forming a joint venture. They're going to, you know, continue to build. buy the sun. They're going <laughs> to, believe it or not, they're going to lasso it. It's it's crazy. You know, they're going to, uh, you know, they're going to continue to build power plants and major uh, power solar power projects. But they're actually going to retain ownership in them and uh, form these form companies. Um, one company now that is going to be essentially a utility company. So it's a chance for investors to for these companies to own it, but also investors as well to own own these solar power companies and, and benefit from a utility-like business. Um, this is it's, it's interesting news across the solar industry in general. I think we talked about SolarCity before on this show, about the, the changing business model. And it's all really because of solar has become much more competitive as an energy source. Uh, and so, you see companies like Apple and Google now. Apple actually recently just uh, um, decided to buy a part of the uh, new uh, first solar project going on uh, a few weeks ago. So, um, it's a, it's really an exciting part of the business, and, and you can actually, as an investor, I think now begin to see to get some value out of this uh, industry. Well, and I saw a couple of headlines comparing this deal to uh, saying this is akin to Coca Cola and Pepsi teaming up together. I don't know uh, if the, if these two companies are that sort of fierce rivalry, but it, but I guess it speaks to the opportunity of a partnership. Sure. Well, these are the two really the two biggest U.S. Producers of solar panels, so you are getting the two biggest players getting together, and so there's going to be a lot of efficiencies, a lot of scale that they can do um, out of this joint venture. Shares of the Gap up on Friday after fourth quarter profits came in higher than expected. Gap is also the parent company of Old Navy and Banana Republic. And Ron, when you look at these numbers, Old Navy really is carrying a lot of water for this company. They are same store sales plus 11 percent for Old Navy. Um, and the company has said the focus going forward is going to really be on right-sizing the Gap brand um, because you really need to fix that to get this company um, firing on all cylinders, if you will. I love the term right-sizing because it, <laughs> it never means we just need to make it bigger. 
No, it's, they, it's not just about expanding. It's it's about getting the assortment right, specifically the women's clothing line um, has to be revamped. Um, overall, I do think this quarter looked pretty good, but Old Navy, as you said, the big driver. The street also loves to see the $1 billion share buyback, um, very important, and increasing the dividend by 4.5% gives you now about a 2.2% yield, um, certainly another thing investors like to see. So the company is, is doing better, um, but if they can fix Gap, then I think we'll start to really see the stock move. The executives at Gap were pretty conservative with their guidance for 2015. It, it seems like a smart move when you consider that in 2014, uh, the business and the stock really didn't do all that well. Yeah, smart move. And you also have two things going on here. You have foreign currency, which hurt 2014. It's going to continue to hurt 2015. The, the, the strong dollar is affecting businesses all over, all across the board. You also have delays from the West Coast ports that are really hurting retailers. Um, the government had to step in. The U.S. government stepped in and kind of put an end to the strife between management and unions. But there's a big backlog here of stuff stuck on ships waiting to be unloaded. It's going to bleed into 2015. And who knows if it's really and truly solved. So that's going to impact results as well. Coming up, a big week in the beverage industry. Details next. This is Motley Full Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. Shares of the Boston Beer Company falling 12% this week. Fourth quarter results came in lower than expected. Matt, they also lowered guidance for all of the next fiscal year. That is the really tough one-two punch. It is. Um, I think you said it right, Chris, before the show. They're kind of stuck between the crap brewers on the low end and you know the hard place, the the Budweisers of the world on the other end. And it's uh, it gets it puts them in an awkward place because they are becoming a national brand, even beyond national brand. Um, but it, it, it's it's taking them a lot to get there. They're spending a lot of money, and they did spend a lot of money this year on you know investing in the supply chain, growing their brewing capacity. Um, you know the results to me look pretty good. The depletion rate, which is just the sale of distributors to retailers, was up 13% in the quarter, up 20. 22% in 2014. So it's a good year. I just think this is a company that's got to invest a lot in in marketing. It's got, they've got a lot of capex they've got to put into the business. They support a lot of brands, as we know. By the way, the new Cold Snap. I don't know if you tried it. The, the, oh yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, that was for, that actually, they introduced that last year, I believe. But yeah, it's a really good beer. Really good. Um, my first time I've had it just recently. But you know, they, they've got a lot of brands and flavors in, in Sam Adams, and so. Um, and it's just still trying to become that that really big go-to craft beer brand. So it's going to take a lot to get there. Yeah, but Jason, they are in a tougher place in that there are so many more small local craft brewers popping up around the country. And once upon a time, Sam Adams could position itself against Budweiser and and Miller and and sort of the behemoths. But now you've got small local breweries who are positioning themselves that way against Sam Adams. Absolutely. I think there are a lot of a lot of brewers out there that are really uh, exploiting the the locality, sort of the local nature of, of this industry. You know, 20 years ago when I was in college, Sam Adams was it was really the craft brewed, right? I mean, that was kind of a special thing if you were able to go out there and afford that. Um, but, but, you know, 20 years later, this is a much more crowded space, plenty of names out there. And so, yeah, I agree that, that Boston Beer is certainly in a position where they're going to have to figure 
figure out new ways to grow. I'm a little disappointed that they are not growing the alchemy and science wing of their business uh, faster. That is is where they're bringing in some uh, little name craft brewers uh, to to fold into their mix and help with the distribution and help them grow. It just doesn't seem like they're investing in that as quickly enough as I thought they might. So I'd really love to see them ramp that up because that I think is going to be really key to them growing. And I agree with Jason, but you remember, I mean, we yeah, the stock was sold off maybe seven or eight percent after the results. But this is a this is a stock that's up about two hundred percent over the I, last I was just couple say, years. Yeah, I mean, it's the last a couple of years, it's been great, remarkable run. And I certainly don't think, um, essentially, at a three billion dollar market size, this company can get a lot bigger. Monster Beverage hitting a new all time high this week after fourth quarter profit and revenue came in higher than expected for the energy drink company. Also, Matty, a new distribution deal with Coke. Yes, I mean this. A lot of good things happening for Monster Beverage. I mean, look at the results. the The revenue itself was up twelve percent, but the operating income was up forty three percent. They've taken a lot of costs out of their business, and that's because they have this sort of fledgling distribution agreement with Coca Cola, which hit a new hit a new uh, level recently. So they've taken a lot of costs out of the business. Um, you know, the brand is ex- uh, expanding very well. But the deal with Coke is really interesting. Essentially, Coke is saying, "All right, Monster, you run our energy business." We'll take we'll take your non-soda flavors and we'll just we'll but we'll do distribution together and so for Monster it's it's fantastic I mean they they're going to get you know really global distribution for their brand they're going to spend a lot less on that because Coke's going to take that on uh, and for Coke of course it just gives them a new you know a new group of brands that they can sell within their distribution system so uh, certainly for Monster exciting exciting quarter it seems though and and I say this having never actually consumed Monster beverage any of their beverages but it seems like the energy drink market. Um, kind of has a ceiling on it. Whereas, you know, I look at someone like Jason Moser, who's uh, professed his love for Diet Coke time and time again, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he's going to be there. he's going to be there. drinking that for the next 50 years as long as it's around. Whereas, I just look at the energy drinks as that's just for younger people, and at some point they grow out of it. I, that's the thing I don't know. I mean, I I don't drink a lot of energy drinks, but I just certainly know people around my peer group and younger who do, and I feel like maybe for them it's something that they're going to they're going to stick with as they get older. Ron, you have any interest in a monster beverage? No, I think at a certain age you graduate to those five-hour energy little shots. <laughs> oh, there you but go. I have interest oh. in neither. Those but are health, those are those are really healthy. These things life. haven't been around long enough, I think, for us to really gather the the health implications here either, right? I mean, we're going to see a generation of kids here. They're they're going to be hitting their forties and fifties after having consumed these beverages for twenty and thirty years. Uh, you know, who knows how that's going to really play out? <laughs> Scary thought. Well. Not everything can be as healthy as Diet Coke, right? Nope. No, it can't. <laughs> uh, the holidays may have been good for Target, but not so much for Sears. Holiday sales for Sears fell 24% from the year before. And if you're scoring at home, Ron, this is the 11th straight quarterly loss. Don't worry, Sears. though, Chris. Eddie Lampert's got a plan. Oh, really? No, the worry. CEO's got it all under CEO, control? CEO... Uh, Hedge fund guy extraordinaire is now focusing on profit, not sales growth. And that's what you get when you get a retailer who's a hedge fund guy and not a merchant. Um, He's going to be spinning off, he's going to be selling, in effect, 300 of their stores, um, raising about $2 billion. He'll lease them back so they can continue to operate the Sears stores. In some cases, he'll lease these stores to other retailers um, that need space. And this is part of the financial engineering that's gonna gonna happen. Now, in a, in a sale leaseback like this, it's typically a financial engineering employee to recapitalize the business. You, in a sense, are taking on debt, and but you're getting a lot of cash, and you can use that to buy back a ton of stock, which they could here. They could retire a ton of their stock if they wanted to. Lampert already owns 49% of the company. 
In this case, it's a little tough, though, because they can't really afford to service that new debt because the company is not profitable. So they can't make that $2 billion go away and have all this extra lease expense um, on their income statement. So the company is going to have to continue to try to turn the corner, improve the business, um, improve online. They have this new shop your way concept where you earn points and you shop online as well. Um, it hasn't been successful. He keeps trying to sell pieces off, whether it's Land's End or the Sears Canada business. Now it's 300 of the stores. It, it just is not working for him. But if they end up being successful in terms of leasing Sears locations to other businesses, you have to imagine they're going to do more of that, in which case Sears becomes less of a retailer and more of a commercial real estate business. That's exactly right. This portion of the business would be a real estate investment trust. One would assume, like most do, they would pay out the bulk of their profits and dividends. It could theoretically be a nice business if there's demand for those locations. Um, you know, a lot of the Sears stores are not necessarily in places where other companies would want to be. You know, it depends on on the cost of that real estate. Um, but it, it could be better than just running those Sears stores, which in some cases are clearly just not doing well and continue to deteriorate. So he's going to financial engineer anything he can to try <laughs> to get this stock price up, and we'll see. Well, if he owns that much of the stock, it's certainly in his interest to do so. Guys, here's an actual headline from this week's news. DreamWorks Animation lost an insane amount of money in their fourth quarter. And yet, Jason Moser, Mm -hmm. the stock up more than 10%. What's going on here? Um, How low are expectations for this company? So I I would say they're very low. Uh, The only thing worse than the quarter they lobbed up was the guidance that they offered for 2015. Um, I'm I'm more optimistic, more enthusiastic about doing my taxes right now than I am about this stock. (laughs) Oh, shoot. I got to do my taxes. They are are stuck. And the worst part is this is the easy part, right? All All this cost cutting. You know, firings and selling headquarters, and you know, sort of restructuring the business to, to be to be leaner. That's the easy part. The tough part is figuring out how to come up with with hit content. And uh, you know, they 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 have some okay properties there, some okay franchises, but they continue to go up against uh, Disney, and they continue to get shellacked by Disney every time. So they've whittled it back. They've got one release this year coming up, 2015. Uh, and, and unfortunately for them, that's coming at really probably not the greatest time. They're going to release that at the end of. March, about two weeks after Disney releases its Cinderella, uh, which I anticipate will do very well. I'm not so sure about this DreamWorks release, but they are they are really needing to focus more on the consumer products division of this business, which unfortunately for them was down 4% for the year, uh, along with the new media segment of the business, which won't be, it won't drive the top line as much, but that's certainly going to be more profitable. So that's that's those acquisitions like Awesomeness TV and playing sort of into the, to the internet age, so to speak. But you know, I, I just... I, I, I don't see it for this they, company they, for this I, year. I mean, yeah. maybe 2016, 17, 18 is better. I know. I think they've got they got to sell themselves. I mean, they, they really have to say, you know, if, if we want to be the next Pixar or whatever they want to be, I mean, we got to get ourselves into a bigger company where we can they, the risks are spread out, we get more capital, and we and our business model and, and company isn't dependent on us hitting out hits. I those, just think that's got to happen. Those rumors were flying around, too. Yep. It just it, nothing ever really came of it. All right, Jason Moser, Ron Gross, Matt Argusinger. Guys, we'll see you a little bit later in the show. But up next, we're talking international investing with portfolio manager Bill Mann. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money.
Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Bill Mann is the portfolio manager at Motley Fool Funds, and he joins me in studio now. Thanks for being here. Hey, Chris. How are you? I'm well. Uh, part of the reason I'm well is uh, leads right into my first question, because it's about the market in general, which <laughs> maybe it's just me, but it seems like every other month, the S&P 500 is hitting a new all-time high. And you and I have talked before at that ha- that has in fact happened. We've talked before. At at your core, you are a value investor. So yeah. what? I'm not saying it's like 2001, but it does seem like it's getting a little frothy out there. And I'm curious what goes through your mind when you look at the market today. So, I think that 2001 isn't a really good allegory. I think the I think the better allegory is 1999. So 1999, and this might freak people out because people immediately remember the dot-coms. The the really interesting thing about the market right now is that it's it's really two different markets. Uh, 2013 was a weird year uh, in that U.S. stocks really, really outperformed uh, a lot of other uh, markets around the world. And in 2014, it got even weirder because really the large cap stocks in the U.S. really outperformed small caps. And a lot of the segments of small caps in the U.S. have gotten crushed. So it's our job to look everywhere in the market. And to, you know, and to me, I just, I, I'm almost surprised at the end of the day where, you know, when I see that the S&P is hitting a new high and NASDAQ is hitting, you know, highs that they haven't, you know, hit since 2000 because, there's a lot of carnage out there everywhere else besides U.S. large caps. So, in terms of finding value in the market, is there value in the small cap oh, sector, yeah. or is yeah, it, for or, sure. or is it completely outside the U.S.? Both, uh, both. I, I, so, small caps had a really big year in, in 2012 and 2013. So, and and and. Keep in mind when we when we talk about these things, we don't invest thematically. Like I don't wake up in the morning going, "Well, I've got to find U.S. small caps," or "I've got to find foreign." We're looking for value anywhere, so we actually do own some U.S. large cap companies, and we'll continue to own them. But it's not the most fertile fishing grounds, you know. We, we we're, we're finding a lot of things elsewhere, and in you know in the small cap segment right now. And I think that it's I think it has to do with people being slightly more afraid than, you know, than the uh, than the big markets, the the big cap stocks would suggest. If you think about it, in some ways, large cap U.S. companies, that's a flight to safety. If you want to own equities, but you're a little bit worried about owning equities, the best place you can go would be the biggest domestic companies. Let me spot you up with a headline from a recent article in Money Magazine. And the headline is, are international stocks still worth the risk? Oh, You're someone who looks at international companies. How do you answer that question? What is that from? What's the date? <laughs> I don't have the exact date on it. So, so basically, the thought is, because U.S. stocks have done so well, and because the U.S. currency has done so well, that maybe we need to start running away from foreign stocks. Is that kind of it? That's kind of it. Yeah, that's that's insane. <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy. Uh, so, I, I mean, it's 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 very typical. I think it's typical of you know of a lot of financial journalism, but I think it's typical in general to extrapolate things that have just happened and then you know look out into the future. I was just thinking about two thousand and seven. I was doing some research on you know on on 
uh, you know, some some segments of the market, specifically looking at oil prices. And a lot of the stuff that I came across in 2007 were all about peak oil and all about how the dollar was about to die. And one of the articles I came across was uh, Giselle, is it Giselle? Giselle Bunchen wanting to be paid in euros because she thought the dollar was going to collapse. I mean, well done, right? The, you know, the, the, the euro has dropped so quickly and so significantly since then. I mean, it was just a horrible decision. I mean, of course, she's got this guy who also makes some money yeah. th- throwing footballs and things like that. So I think she's probably done okay. But we are always, we always tend to be worried about the thing that's just happened. So there's a you know there, there's a measure of market value. It's called the Schiller PE. It's it's basically the price earnings price price to earnings ratio divided by a do, dude who won the Nobel Prize, right? I mean, so basically, it's a way of leveling out market cycles and figuring out what is actually a value and what isn't. And right now, emerging markets have a Schiller PE of about ten, and the U.S. has a Schiller PE of twenty seven. There's only one market, major market that's higher than us. That's that's Denmark. So, um, and I don't really know why that is. It's actually kind of weird to me that it would be Denmark. But there you go. So, thinking about the market being, you know, whether you should run away from international stocks now, I, I just think that's crazy. I mean, you're fighting the battle that you've just fought, right? In, international stocks had a terrible 2013, a terrible 2014. It has to stop sometime. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Bill Mann, Portfolio Manager at Motley Fool Funds. I want to ask you about a couple of specific U.S. companies in just a second. But first, speaking of things that have happened recently, uh, over in Europe, uh, we have a brand new prime minister in Greece, and it seems- Who's mixing some things up. Who is mixing some things up. And I'm, I'm just curious, for the average U.S. investor- who, if you're just looking at the mainstream financial media, you're seeing more coverage of Europe, and we're seeing almost a recycling of the stories that we had a few years ago of, is Greece going to leave the EU, and what does that mean for the entire European economy? And I'm just wondering, how concerned should I be? Not at all. I mean, I, I think the really interesting thing about this story is, right now, I can name to you the, the, the Prime Minister of Greece, you know, Alexis Tsipras. Maybe I'm not saying it right, but that's his name. When's the last time you could name the prime minister of Greece or, you know, or the the finance minister of Greece? These guys, you know, <laughs> it's it's amazing to me what we are focusing on. Um, I, you know, that said, it's it's kind of a big deal. I, I, I but the coverage of what's happened with Greece over the last month and then over the last five years it's almost it, it, it's almost consistently been wrong. I mean, if you think about so uh, you know so the the new power the, the the new government came into power in in Greece and immediately they went on a tour and just had an, a horrible horrible experience going to Germany, going to the Netherlands, and they're like, well, no, we're not we're not going to renegotiate the terms of your bailout. They, you know, that's why they call them bailouts. So. So then Greece goes back and then, you know, they, they, they all get together and of course they negotiate. They, of course they renegotiate the terms of, of, of the bailout because what's bad for the borrower is also bad for the lender. It's just going to happen that way. So I think that anytime you're looking at a, you know, an, at an outcome that seems extreme, it probably is extreme. You know, I, I don't know. Nobody knows what would happen if Greece actually gets kicked out of the EU. But because that's the case... I really want to stress that that has got to be 
a last ditch scenario. I mean, they're not, you know, they're all rational, right? Even if they don't like each other, even if they don't trust each other, they're all still rational. All right, let's bring it back to the U.S. and let's start with Tesla Motors, um, which uh, certainly based on the most recent quarters, having a little bit of a tough go of it. Certainly over in China, Elon Musk said uh, sales are much lower than expected in China. They're still planning to build hundreds of public charging stations. And anyone who buys a new Model S, apparently he's going to get a, a free charger for their home. When you think about Tesla's future in China, what does it look like? It's huge. It's huge. I mean, good lo- how long have How long have they been selling cars in China? About ten minutes. Yeah, about ten minutes. I'm I'm almost amazed that I mean they do because we we are a quarter by quarter you know beast, you know we do focus on you know on 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 what's happening on a thirteen week uh, cycle. Of course, you do have to address it, but there is no reason to be nervous about what Tesla is doing in China based on what's happened over the last thirteen weeks. They've only been selling Model S's in China for way less than a year. So the fact that they don't have revenues, this is, you know, this is like worrying that your eight month old can't read yet. Right. It's just it's just not that big of a deal. Now, you know, Tesla's, you know, Tesla's stock has had really a remarkable run over the last two and a half to three years. So anything and anytime there's bad news, you have to wonder if it's been it's properly been priced in. But Tesla's going to be huge in China. I mean, they just they they just will be every time I see the readings of the Beijing air being 20 times, 23 times the, you know, the, the internationally decided safe limit for particulates and things of that nature. I'm like, they, this is coming. Yeah. We have a couple of colleagues, Tim Hansen and Joe Mager, uh, Matt Joss as well in Australia. All three of those guys recently made trips yeah. to Beijing and all three of them, when you asked them about it, the first thing they talked about was the air quality. Oh, yeah. No, the air there, it's like its like licking pavement to breathe in, in Beijing right now. It, it's its really, really bad. Not that I like pavement that often, but you know, it's how I would imagine it is to... In theory. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on to Google, which is the undisputed leader in search in North America. And it's a company that's investing in exciting things like driverless cars and SpaceX. And yet, when you look at the stock over the past 12 months, it really hasn't performed like an undisputed leader. It's been trailing the market. Where is Google right now? And what should investors expect if they're thinking about investing in Google? Google's still a monster to me. I mean, Google's a company that, you know, if... We tend to we, we tend to characterize companies, and and Google to me is still a mutant company. They could end up doing a lot of you know a lot of different things, driverless cars. You know, they may open a cafe. Who knows what you know? Who knows what's going Google's going to do? They have tens of billions of dollars of cash to throw at problems. You know, and it's and it's it's a luxury that very few other companies have. So Google had a had a very very strong 2013 from a stock perspective. They had a strong 2012 for a, from a stock perspective. I don't I don't really see any reason to become concerned about Google simply because its stock has taken a breather over the last 12 months because I I don't know that the argument can be made that they are losing ground in 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 the areas where they have such a tremendous lead and in search 
they're just minting money. I mean, that's that. There's really no other way to put it. So if the stock got a got ahead of itself, you know, that's okay. Once upon a time, Google tried to make a go of it in China and yeah. uh, stopped after a while because it wasn't really working out. And in it Chi- was forced to stop. <laughs> and in China, you have Baidu, which is the Google of China. Yeah. At some point, do you see these two companies attempting to re-engage in battle, or do you think that, at least for the foreseeable future, Google is content to stay in its part of the planet, and Baidu is content to stay in its part of the planet? You know, that's a really good question, actually. I, 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 because China is essentially a closed market to to Google, I don't really, I don't really think, and I don't really model. Google getting back into China, but there are ways that they could conceivably even either either compete with Baidu in China or cooperate with Baidu in China. Baidu is a fabulously well-run company, and I think that if Baidu ends up simply being a you know being the dominant Chinese search engine, it's going to be a fabulous business. I would imagine that the bigger you know the bigger opportunity is uh, for you know for for Baidu to follow along with China's real ongoing reengagement with the world over the you know. Over the last month, we had the Chinese New Year, and, and uh, there are estimates estimates that five million Chinese uh, tourists left China and traveled overseas. You know, during the during during the period of a week, they're using. I mean, first of all, it's got to be exciting for them to be able to use an unfettered internet, but they'll still use Baidu when they're overseas. So there are there are going to be organic opportunities for Baidu overseas. All right. Before I let you go, I have to mention Declarations, which is the free monthly email newsletter from Bill Mann and the team at Full Funds. You can go to foolfunds.com to sign up for it. And in the most recent issue, you wrote about Dean Smith, who's the uh, one of the all-time great college basketball coaches. And you start with a quote from Dean Smith, which is, you should never be proud of doing the right thing. You should just do the right thing. Yeah. And I, I, I found uh, what you wrote really interesting because you used that quote to pivot to the financial services industry where the right thing seems to be hard for some people to do. Yeah, I mean, I think here at The Motley Fool, it's really easy for us to throw bricks at the financial services industry. I really actually think that that most of the people who are in financial services, who, you know, who are who are brokers, who are, you know, who who manage people's money, they're fundamentally decent human beings. I can think of very few that I've ever come across that I thought, wow, this, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't trust this person with my dog's money. Um, But there are things about the financial services industry that almost sabotage good people's ability to do good. One is compensation practices. The compensation practices at a lot of brokers and a lot of dealers are so convoluted that they make it so that you have a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, a little bit of column C, and at no point in any, in any of those columns is, well, how did your client end up doing? Right. It just it just doesn't come up. It's all about selling certain things, making certain types of transactions. And it is simply human nature. I think that, you know, if you're being paid for one thing over another, that you're simply going to look at that one with more favor. It it, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It's you know, it is a natural thing to do. And I think I think ultimately it is it's really hard in that type of environment for people just to do the right thing. 
Well, it's a great piece and includes great pieces of advice for a lot of people who are dealing with a financial advisor, including we were talking during the break. Ask your financial advisor whether he or she owns any of the investments being recommended to you. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. that's one of those things that it seems obvious once you hear it, but I, I, almost no one thinks to ask that. Right. You think it, you, you, you ask it, then you just stop and listen, right? <laughs> it, it is, you don't even, I think one of the hardest things for people is that they feel like when they go into a meeting like this or, you know, even when they're analyzing stocks, they don't feel like they're the ones who know everything. But common sense questions aren't hard to know. You just have to ask them. And a, and a very simple one is asking the financial advisor which of the products that he's telling he or she are telling you to buy that they own. And if it's none, there's a pretty easy you know there's a pretty easy follow up. Like, well, why are you recommending this to me? Go to FullFunds.com, sign up for declarations. Bill Mann, Portfolio Manager at Motley Full Funds. Thanks for being here. Always good to see you, Chris. Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Full Money. Welcome back to Motley Full Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. Guys, it is that time once again for the Stocks on Our Radar, and I'm happy to report that on the other side of the glass, once again, is our man Steve Broido. We'll hit you with a question. Ron Gross, you're up first. Steve, we've talked about it before, but I'm going back to Crocs, C-R-O-X. Uh, they just reported last week, core didn't look pretty, but let's not focus on the past, as I said earlier in the show. It's about the future. New CEO, Blackstone Group, is highly involved, made a $200 million investment closing stores. They're uh, moving international. They're cutting costs. The future looks bright. Stock's 11. I'm reviewing my model now, but it's worth probably somewhere 17 to 20, possibly even higher. Steve, question about Crocs? Where is that Crocs stuff going to be next? The foamy, spongy stuff? Anywhere you want. How about pillows? I'm in. <laughs> wow. Matt Argusinger. Hey, Steve. My stock is Shutterstock. SSTK. Um, this is uh, it's 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 been cut in half. It's a co- it's essentially the, the world the web's largest stock photo library. Images, videos. They have millions of them. Um, you know, sell them to individuals and small businesses who want images for their sites. We actually, at the Motley Fool, we we often buy uh, images from Shutterstock for our sites. Piracy. That's my question. I've, I've jumped the gun. No, no, no go right more of a statement. More of a statement. What do they do about piracy? Big pro- no, big, big problem. I, you know, that uh, obviously people get free stuff all the time, and it happens in every industry. I think they've done a, a you know, a good job of making sure that you know their security and and the images they're uh, they're offering are are up to par, and that's the best they can do. Unfortunately. Jason Moser, what do you got? So, Steve, I'm sure you have seen this big ad campaign on TV for Booking.com. That is part of my recommendation or the stock that's on my radar this week. Priceline Group, ticker is PCLN. Uh, if you travel, then you know this company. You can get your plane tickets, rental cars, hotels, and even now dinner reservations, Steve, with the acquisition of OpenTable. But I think that the online travel industry, which is referred to as a multi-trillion dollar industry, uh, presents a very large opportunity for companies like this. Priceline is the market leader out there. Smart leadership, healthy balance sheet, a tremendous network, more than 600,000 hotel providers in that network today in more than 200 countries. This is a company that still has a lot to offer. Steve, question about Priceline? Just talked to my dad about Priceline, and he said, you know, it doesn't work. The name your own pricing. It's cheaper just to buy them through Priceline. Do you have well, thoughts I've, on that? I, I've done the name your own price once. The name your own price, you are you are sticking yourself to a certain time frame. As far as pricing goes, I've never found a site that was able to provide me more options than Priceline has. Steve, three stocks. You got one you like? 
I like, I wear Crocs, uh, shutter sock, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to go with Priceline. Been, oh, I know it's been a monster over so the years. Close. You were so close. We just bought some for the little kids. So oh, they're, good. they're adorable. All right. Ryan Gross, Matt Argus, and Jason Moser. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. thanks Chris. That's going to do it for this week's show. The show's mixed by Rick Engdahl, our engineer, Steve Broido. Our producer's Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. We'll see you next week. Thank you.